Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily D.C., We are now up to 91% of Americans living under a stay-at-home order. With that comes some giving up of individual freedoms, something at the very core of what it means to be an American. So that dilemma is one thing we will discuss today as we look at the ethics behind some of the coronavirus impact, both legally and medically. We have two perfect guests to discuss this with. Joining me on the phone is CNN medical analyst and the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine, Dr. Art Kaplan, and CNN chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. Thank you both for being here. Appreciate it. Jeff, let me begin with you on this stay-at-home issue because we're now at 91% of the country covered by this, so it's almost a de facto national kind of blanket order, except there are some 12 states that are still not actually uh, with a full statewide stay-at-home order. And I guess my first question to you, I get it a lot from uh, listeners as well. Constitutionally, in our federal system, Jeff, is a national stay-at-home order even something the federal government could do? Well, in the best um, lawyer's tradition, I'm going to say it's not clear. Um, (laughs) what, What is clear is that states certainly do have the right uh, to impose this sort of uh, emergency restriction on movement. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But the federal government is a government of limited powers. You know, many people are familiar with the Commerce Clause. Most of the regulatory efforts that the federal government does is pursuant to the authority granted um, to the federal government to regulate interstate commerce. It also has the right um, to regulate I- immigration. But there is no sort of just general power to do laws that Congress and the president thinks are a good idea. Uh, because the threat of a virus like this one is one that transcends both international and state borders, um, there would certainly be a good argument that the federal government would have a right to impose such an order. But the federal government has never done that. And that is, I think, still an, an open question. So let me just ask you another slice of this, which is, And this is, I know, a bit hypothetical. I'm I'm dreaming this up here. But could you imagine a scenario where an individual American sort of sues against the state they're in for this because it's some infringement on their individual liberty? And would that kind of argument have any kind of standing in a court? Um, I I think it would have standing to bring the case. Um, I think it is a virtual certainty that person would lose. Um, give, give, you know, it would obviously go under um, the state law of whatever state it happened to be in. But I don't think there is any doubt in the world that a court would say, uh, given the magnitude of the threat here, that the stay at home order uh, was consistent with state law. 
I, I just think it is the very definition of protecting the broader general public, which is something states are allowed to do, that a court would say this is appropriate under these circumstances. Now, you know, you can imagine hypotheticals about this. You know, what, what if it's six months from now? What if the threat seems to be less? Um, the case could be certainly a little more complicated. But at least if someone went to court today, I don't think there would be any chance of success in overturning one of these state restrictions on movement. Yeah. I mean, I ask because the governor of Tennessee was basically making the individual freedom argument, the individual liberty argument as to why he had been so reluctant to go along with a statewide stay at home order. It's something the Democratic congressman from Tennessee, Steve Cohen, was on CNN last night pushing back against. Well, I've been surprised. I told him on a call we had with the entire congressional delegation last week that I thought he should do it and wrote him originally that he should do that. He, he gave a, a, a response that he was concerned about personal freedoms. And it was, uh, this, this is not a time to be concerned about personal freedoms. We're talking about the most serious public health crisis in the history of our earth. Saying that these are extraordinary times and, and that argument shouldn't hold any water, but it was one the governor was apparently making when, when talking to legislators about it. D- David, I don't want to overcomplicate this, but there's sort of a reverse version of this problem uh, that's come up now in Arizona, where democratically controlled cities are saying, we want more restrictions on movement. And the governor of Arizona, who is a Republican, saying, no, we are going to let all these businesses stay open. And the cities are pressing the state government saying, you need to impose a stricter order. So these are the kind of fights uh, that may yet wind up in court. Dr. Kaplan, obviously, uh, the ethical pull of of individual freedom versus the greater good in restricting public activity is one thing, but the kind of ethics that are at play inside these emergency rooms and hospitals are truly life and death at times. And I'm wondering, I know you specialize in medical ethics. You know, we read so much early on about what was happening in Italy as as certain patients were being adjudicated as to whether or not they would get the life-saving measures or, or not. Have we seen that in the United States yet? And is it going to come to that where doctors have to choose which patients get the medical care uh, versus others that won't? We haven't seen it yet, but I would give it another week and we will start to see surges pressing the healthcare system that are going to require what's sometimes called triage or more commonly rationing. The uh, CDC advisor, Dr. Burks, had suggested in one of the press conferences that it was premature to get people thinking or worrying about this. I disagree completely. I can tell you on my computer, I have about 80 policies from places around the United States, around New York, and some from around the world about what they're going to do when that surge on resources strikes. And I can tell you it's a complex story because it isn't just at the emergency room or hospital door. The first level of triage is the emergency medical responders, ambulance, fire, and police. Who are they moving? New York is seeing record numbers of calls. They're not going to be able to address them all as quickly, if ever, uh, if we really get a gigantic surge. So the first group that's going to be triaging is the person who comes or doesn't come to your apartment or your house. Imagine the person who's uh, 450 pounds up on a fifth floor walk up, needs four people to get him down, and uh, you've got a two-man crew because they're down on personnel, 
because they had sickness. That's where triage starts. They may say we're passing that person and going to use our time and resources to rescue two or three for what it would take to try and handle that case. At the emergency room door, tough challenges there too. I will tell you from the world of transplant, which I've been working in forever, what we try to do is take scarce resources and save the most lives when we don't have enough for everybody. And that's roughly speaking what most places are going to do in the U.S. They'll consider everyone disabled, whatever their gender, whatever their ethnicity, uh, whatever their age. We're not going to do what Italy did and just blanket rule out people over 60. But once you're in the lifeboat in deciding who's going to get something, we're going to look very hard at the likelihood that your biology and your physiology predicts whether you're going to survive. And if you're 89 and have three lung diseases and have had four prior heart attacks, you probably are not going to fare as well in a rationing scenario as someone who's 35 and otherwise healthy, but for the virus infection. And does this become sort of part of daily life on the front lines of of treating this? Or are we thinking about sort of the most extreme and rare scenarios where doctors are going to have to confront these kinds of choices? Well, if we don't do the right thing and we get those court fights about liberty and people wandering around, this uh, pandemic will be with us for a long time. Uh, The whole point is to prevent it from coming to your part of the country and then causing these surges on the healthcare system. You may not see it today. You may think it's fine to go to a restaurant or keep businesses open. Uh, Let's see where things stand in two months in those areas relative to pressing on resources. So if we don't get a handle on this, then we're going to have surges that break the healthcare system and they're going to cycle around uh, periodically. I worry that You know, I don't want to say they're going to become extraordinarily common, but if you look at the profiles in Seattle, New York, New Orleans, Detroit, see what the resources are, see what the personnel are, see what the status is of protective equipment, worry about people on the front lines getting sick and having to drop out. I think it could become a strong or an everyday reality for many parts of the healthcare system, not all at once, but if you will, rippling out like uh, a rock thrown into a pond across the country and then reoccurring because we didn't do what it takes to get this thing under control. And you mentioned you don't envision a blanket kind of policy, just everyone over 60, you know, doesn't uh, get particular care or what have you. But but, um, do you think age is one of the most significant factors that gets calculated in these kinds of decisions? It is, and I'll tell you why. There's a mountain of data, I know it well, that uses age to predict who does well on a ventilator under normal circumstances. (laughs) That is to say, we know if you're over 85, regardless of other health issues, that is a predictor because your lung capacity goes down with your older age of doing well on a vent. So it has to be. I know people worry that we're making judgments about whose life is worth more than somebody else's. That's not the decision. The decision is who can respond well to the use of a ventilator putting people at risk if they don't have the right protective gear. And if I can, let me tell you what the most miserable issue is, which will take us back to Jeff's area of expertise. It's one thing to get in. It's another thing to be on that ventilator seven, eight days, and the ICU person comes by and says, you're not doing well. The other way we get more beds and more ventilators is to give up on you. Now, there are plenty of people that have advanced directives that say, do everything for me. There are a lot of people who would expect to have a consent discussion about whether that's okay to do. I will say flat out, In a crunch, in an emergency, overwhelmed ICUs, 
You're going to start to see people unilaterally taken out, taken off, allowed to die, moved to palliative care in order to free up resources. So it's one thing to get in. It's another thing then to be in a bed and realize this patient is failing. This patient is not doing well. Normally, we wouldn't move them. Under these circumstances, we will. You know, David, this is not a hypothetical issue, nor is it new. Shari Fink, um, who now writes for The New York Times, wrote an extraordinary book called Five Days at Memorial about one of the hospitals in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And uh, long story short, one of the doctors was prosecuted for, in essence, sort of mercy killing some patients to try to save others. And that book is an exceptionally sensitive examination of all the issues that are involved. So that was a very localized crisis. Imagine, as Art's discussing, this issue of, you know, what do we do with a limited number of ventilators in the whole country, in multiple hospitals? That's what makes this such a fraught, fraught question. It's hard to imagine, Jeffrey, that our legal system will not be seeing a ton of cases in lots of different areas related to this pandemic. I mean, I just think of looking at a lot of the litigation that existed around uh, the health issues after 9-11 for folks who were working down at the – it just seems to me we are going to see lots of coronavirus-related legal cases that enter into the medical and health realm uh, in the months and years ahead. So your point is no, your point is no matter what happens, it's always good for the lawyers. <laughs> that, that, that's, uh, that's a given. Uh, David, you're, you're a young man. Um, these cases will be around for the rest of your life. Um, all of these cases. I mean, you, you, I mean, just the insurance issues alone, you know, how much the insurance companies are going to have to pay and to whom is going to be and whether the insurance companies can even stay in business, given the likelihood of their being called on to pay billions of dollars. I mean, that is going to go on for a long time. And, you know, a lot of it will depend on what the federal government continues to do. Uh, on these issues, you know, because, you know, the, the bailouts, you know, they're coming for the airlines, but the insurance companies are going to have their hands out uh, as well. And, you know, I, I don't pretend to have any of the answers now, but certainly those issues, like so many issues in American life, will probably wind up being sorted out in the courts. No doubt about it. Uh, Dr. Kaplan, Counselor Tubin, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. All right. And a special thanks to our listeners as well. I'll be answering your questions about the role of government in this pandemic, how the 2020 election has been affected, and it certainly has, the politics of coronavirus on tomorrow's podcast. So please go to my Twitter page, that's at David Jallian, and fill out our submission form with your questions. And if it's a really good one, I will be sure to pick it and answer it. Also, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps other people find the show. If you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so. Use the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.